Hey everybody, welcome back to the Double Down WNBA podcast. Eric Nemchak here alongside Stephen Trinkwald. As always, beginning our 2022 off-season content with one of our favorite annual exercises when we look at our preseason or during season predictions and rip them to shreds, our annual wrong about episode. Yeah, it's a good uh, good exercise to just kind of take stock about some preconceived notions that we had and also just like talk about some things that maybe we wouldn't get a chance to talk about um, if we didn't do an exercise like this. You know, we only record once a week. Sometimes we don't get to hit on players or teams in as much depth as, as we would like to. So it's a good chance to kind of dive into that stuff a little bit more. So uh, definitely have some some well-prepared crow to serve, Eric. I think it's going <laughs> to taste pretty good. Um, where, where do Always. you want to get started? Well, I mean, we have our, our little notes sheet here. Uh, your first entry is the Atlanta Dream. What were we wrong about with the Atlanta Dream? I think just like the level of kind of competence and the identity that this team kind of brought with it with Tanisha Wright as the new head coach brought to them with the new ownership group and the new front office. You know, they ended up missing the playoffs after a very tough end to the season. They lost eight of their final 10 games. You know, they were right in it at the very end. Very easily could have been a seven or eight seed uh, if they, you know, just a couple of those games went a little bit differently and they were all fairly competitive. Um, and honestly, I think it would be pretty easy to just pretend like we were right all along. You know, they were a lottery team. They maybe at times played over their heads, but they were just a much better team, you know, just quality of, of the basketball product that they were putting out there than I, I thought. Like coming into the season, I don't think I was alone in this, but definitely thought that they were going to be closer to, you know, the fever than the Minnesota Lynx or the the Liberty or some of the other kind of like lower end competitive playoff teams and you know they were just as good as any of those teams I think you mentioned Tanisha right right off the bat and I think she does deserve a lot of credit for this typically you know you don't hear of a a team with a losing record or a mediocre record getting their head coach named coach of the year but I think she if she was named coach of the year I would not have an argument because the way you got to compare them to what they were before right just a year ago when it was just a total dumpster fire the Atlanta dream and Tanisha Wright was hired to turn the ship around. And I think, you know, something that doesn't always show up in the box score for coaching is, is culture changes. And I think Tanisha Wright did as good a job of, as you could possibly ask of her, of kind of turning that culture around. You know, this time last year, if you asked me if there was a team like, are the Atlanta Dream a free agency destination? I would say, heck no. No one wants to play there. Look at what happened this past season. But now, I think they could be a legitimate player in free agency uh, moving forward. Because, I mean, it's not just because of their young talent. Obviously, you know, Ryan Howard is a tremendous player. They got some good minutes from Nas Hillman as well. But Erin McDonald, I think, was Aaron better McDonald. than I, I thought she was going to be. Okay, all right. That, that's a good one. Um, so, I mean, they have some building blocks there, so I'm not going to take that away from them. But in addition to that, there is an ex- there's a sense of excitement uh, that they're building towards in Atlanta that just hasn't been there in recent years. So, yes, I agree with you. I also think just to build on your kind of, you know, separate from – what we were maybe wrong about as a team, but just, you know, about them being a, more of a destination. You know, I, I think this new Atlanta dream iteration is kind of undersold as like a WNBA market. Like they, they had good crowds all year at a team that I think kind of in, in the last few years really struggled to get people in the, the building, you know, there looks like a fun time there, doesn't it? It does look like a fun, yeah, it looks like a really good atmosphere. And I think that that can go a long way in, you know, where there's a couple of markets where, you know, it's a little bit tougher to get people in the building. Yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah, I think it was, they have more players. I think that you can feel pretty good about being 
a part of the next good dream team, you know, maybe like hosting a first round series or something like this, then I would have thought even after the draft, you know, Ryan Howard was kind of the one that you, you had circled, but you had mentioned Nas Hillman gave them good minutes. I feel better about what Ari McDonald can be, you know, maybe even as a starting point guard playing next to a Ryan Howard type who can do a little bit more of like, you know, initiating from the wing, you know, Christy Wallace is below 30 uh, in terms of age and, and can certainly be like rotation level. So, you know, some of these players are not quite on the Howard timeline, but some of them are. And, and I think they have a, a pretty nice future going forward. And when it comes to developmental timelines, it's obviously most important that you have that foundational building block, right? You can find a big who can play with Ryan Howard as long as you have Ryan Howard. It sounds, sounds kind of simple to say that, but um, I think they, they knew what they were doing when they, when they made that trade for the number one overall pick, and uh, I think it's going to pay off for them. All right. What did you have first? I singled out a particular player. The first one that came into mind was Dijanae Carrington for the Connecticut Sun. Uh, when we did our rookie wings recap, not the Dallas wings, the wings positionally, um, we did that recap last offseason, as we like to do, and I did not have very kind words to say about Carrington's game. I think I said something along the lines of, you know, she's probably not going to be in the league for very long. She might bounce around from team to team. But she really took a step forward for this Connecticut Sun team. As a Sun fan, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. She was, you know, there was definitely still, like, playoff concerns, but she's a valuable regular season player in a way that I think she wasn't necessarily her rookie year. No surprise. Yeah, heading into the, into the 2022 season, I think one of the big questions for the Sun was, okay, do you take Dejanir Carrington as your bench wing or Kyla Charles as your bench wing? Or, or think, you know, keep them both and kind of burn that, use that 12th pick as like a stash. Like, you know, that right. was a pretty big option as well. Right. But between the two players, I think they, in hindsight, they chose correctly. Um, Carrington improved a lot from her rookie season. Granted, her rookie season numbers, small sample size for sure. But, I mean, she went from being a non-factor in transition to it being her greatest strength. I mean, almost 30% of her transition, or of her possessions, rather, came in transition last season, which is... Kind of emblematic of the team, really. Yeah, really. But it's uh, in a player of her role, that's what you want. You know, I mean, the weaknesses are still there, and I still do have some questions about her game. Like, she's probably not going to give you anything in the pick and roll with the ball in her hands. She's just going to make a beeline for the hoop every time. Not going to pass it very often, but she can turn defense into offense. She brings that energy off the bench. And her shot diet was, you know, low-key pretty good. 164 of her 203 total field goal attempts, which is about 80%, came either in the restricted area or from three-point land. So she's finishing plays in efficient areas. Now, granted, that actual efficiency scoring-wise waxes and wanes with her because she doesn't have the most consistent jump shot. But, you know, I, I feel a lot better about her kind of uh, sliding into that bench wing energy type of player role, like that seventh or eighth player role than I did last season. Um, free throw rate, 37.4%, not bad. I just think she's a much better fit than Kyla Charles was. I'm glad you brought up her shot dive. She's taking the shots that a player in her role should be taking. You know, yeah. when you are usually going to be the fourth or fifth best offensive player on the court for your team at all times, like you sh like to have kind of a quote unquote Maury ball offensive diet where everything is either coming at the rim or from behind the arc, there's still probably some development to be had with her three point shot and the versatility and not sure how much you, you can really believe that she's going to be like a, a positive shooter year over year. But, you know, she's she's doing the right things, I think, offensively. Obviously, like you said, she doesn't give you much playmaking. And, and it, she really is just kind of like strictly a play finisher. 
and, you know, not going to give you much on the creation or even sort of like one extra pass type of, of stuff like that. But there's not a lot of possessions wasted in terms of like the shots that your wing off the bench shouldn't be taking. I agree 100%. And to add to that, I think her role is mostly as as a defensive-minded player, or at least it was this year. I don't know what it's going to be in the future. I can imagine that they're going to want her to get her more minutes in the future, but we'll see how that goes. If you have a defense-first player on the floor, you need them to able to be able to contribute at least something on offense. And Dejanere Carrington does do that. She's maybe not the most efficient scorer in the world, but like you said, the process behind her offense is fairly sound. So, yeah, we, we're on the same page here. Shot diet, she gets to the line. She gets most of her shot attempts either from beyond the three-point line or in the restricted area. And while the results, you know, wax and wane, the process is sound. And you can see it just, like, working a little bit better than the player who you were talking about, you know, it, it kind of coming down to for that last roster spot, Kyla Charles. You know, Charles is a player that I was uh, a fan of after her first year and didn't really kind of make any material steps forward with her finishing at the rim, a player that you kind of profiled as a good finisher at, at, at the rim because she yeah she's so physically gifted and, and so strong. You thought, you know, maybe she'd be able to have some success there. And then, of course, the, the jump shot looked a little bit further away than Carrington as well. So, um, yeah, pretty clear, I think, that Connecticut made the right choice. Uh, I also wanted to talk about an individual player, um, the Liberty Zone Hanzu. I am, am not someone who is super locked into, you know, uh, national team play, so not really familiar with her body of work on the Chinese national team. So the last time I saw her was uh, in 2019 as a member of the uh, Westchester Liberty. And, you know, she was, <laughs> I was kind of hoping for the Liberty's sake that, you know, with their roster crunch, uh, you know, before we kind of knew that. Sabali was going to miss her first season and and this team's playoff aspirations and stuff like that, that, you know, Han was not going to come over this year, just kind of basing my opinion of her on, on 2019, where she was sure. just, you know, not ready for the WNBA as, as a 19-year-old back then, as, you know, probably the worst defensive player in the league that year, probably the worst rebounding big in the league that year, like it... The flashes were there and, and kind of a lot of the things that she did well this season, but it was still, I mean, that season was probably one of the worst rebounding big seasons that I, I've seen in, in the WNBA. And it's still a big area of improvement for her, but I mean, she's, you know, a completely different player than she was then. I remember at the start of the season, maybe a few games into the season when the Liberty started out horribly in 2022, I remember asking Jackie Powell of the next, why is Hanju on this team? Uh, and, and Jackie explained it to me, and, and she was correct in this. They were patient with her, and I guess the moral of the story for me is be patient with people who are 19 years old. What, st what strikes me about Hanju is that she's got a really good shooting touch for someone of that height, and it's not just, oh, wow, she's six foot ten and she can shoot three-pointers. No, 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 like, she can come off screens and hit jump shots. She's got a nice finesse around the hoop. I would like to see her finish at the rim a little bit better than she has uh, so far, but again... She's still really young. You can still she's you can tell she still needs to add some muscle to that very long frame of hers. But I think tools wise, there's a lot to work with here. She carved out a great role for herself on the Liberty as the season progressed. And there are points in the season where we're like, okay, can she play more minutes ahead of Stephanie Dolson? Now, granted, that does say a lot about Stephanie Dolson as well as Hanju, but she looked like she was an actual WNBA contributor. And like I said, there's something to work with there. And I'd be excited about the future if, if I was a Liberty fan for this player. 
Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, one thing that you had touched on was her shooting versatility. Like, she's not just kind of like a standstill three-point shooter, you know, like kind of a, a Steph Dilson type who is a, a quality three-point shooter, is, is always going to have kind of mid to high 30s in terms of like her three-point percentage, but she can actually shoot on the move. And, and that's a really valuable weapon for a 6'10 center. And, you know, I, I do think she's probably still a little ways away from being a real kind of playoff player, a player that you kind of trust in the second round or, or later, even coming off the bench. But she definitely helped this team over the course of the regular season. She's She can hang in most matchups. I think her shooting touch is almost kind of a, a curse in, in the way that, you know, she, she does just feel very comfortable kind of rising over smaller players kind of in in a mismatch rather than, you know, use being able to use her size a little bit and, sure, sure. and punish those. So that's definitely something you, you'd like to see. But I mean, this is definitely a player who at, at 22 years old this past season is someone that, you know, we, we kind of hope we see year over year in the WNBA. I agree. Looking forward to seeing what Hanju has for us in the future. Um, next thing I had was the Las Vegas Aces in general. Neither of us really liked what they did in their previous off season because they didn't really do anything. Uh, I specifically graded them the lowest of any team in our off-season grades because, I mean, they lost Liz Cambage for nothing. They didn't really address uh, their wing position. Like, they had basically no depth at the wing. They entered the season with Jackie Young as, like, their only reliable wing defender and or two-way wing player, however you want to put it. And they had kind of a weird draft. Like, it didn't really fill any needs. And early in the season, you, you saw, you know, Maya Hollingshed didn't even make it out of, tra- out of training Yeah, I camp. mean, the theory of Maya Hollingshed fills a need, I would say. Like, if you were going to yeah. kind of shift Asia to the five, a Maya Hollingshed type made sense, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. But it was very obvious early on that something something went amiss there. Not really sure what it was. but And then they drafted, you know, Kayla Pointer for another backup point guard. It's like, you already got Sid Colson. They did draft, draft Kirsten Bell, which I liked for the position because, you know, a high-ceiling player or at least a player who... I believe had a high ceiling, but that was about it. You know, it seems like one of the one of the takes I had, which uh, aged horrendously, was their biggest competition got better while they got worse. That didn't really turn out to be true. Uh, I, I gotta say, if while we're talking about what we did wrong, I, I did push back on that a little bit. Um, you did? No, you were right. This is this is much more of a me thing. Um, in retrospect, the only their only quote unquote rival that actually got better was Chicago, and. In the head-to-head matchups, the Aces were clearly a better team than Chicago. In fact, the Aces were, I would say, pretty clearly the best team in the WNBA, although the record maybe doesn't bear that out. You saw it in the playoffs. Like They, they just turned into a total machine. Becky Hammond certainly did make the team better. And another thing I said was that you know I'm not sure how much better Becky Hammond can make this team than it already was because I thought Bill Lambeer coached a pretty good basketball team. Um, she did some things that Bill Lambeer just didn't do. Right? I mean, she emphasized the, the spacing around Asia Wilson. They took significant steps to increase the spacing around Asia Wilson rather than just, okay, Asia, shoot more threes. No, no, it's, you know, she placed more trust in Kelsey Plum than Bill Ambeer did. Just the whole offensive system, you know, cutting down on the amount of long twos in favor of more three-pointers. And interestingly, like, the only move that I really liked from their offseason, which was drafting Kirsten Bell, had basically nothing to do with their success. She didn't see much playing time. Um, We'll see if that continues in the future, but... Yeah, uh, Aces were much, much better than I expected. I thought, you know, maybe they'd be a, a Tier 1 team with some several other teams competing with them, but they were clearly the best team in the WNBA, and that, that bore out in the playoffs. Yeah, it did feel like there was just a little bit of kind of missed opportunity with their offseason because they, they had some room to kind of go add somebody, even if it was 
losing Liz Cambage, of course, like time has shown that that was the right call. Um, yes. But, you know, there were names that, that we were kind of looking at for them. You know, Tiffany Hayes uh, was kind of my my dream player for them. And uh, you had mentioned kind of the the lack of depth at the wing. But even just further down the roster, the, the vets that they sort of brought in in the offseason, whether it was bringing back Kia Stokes, which I think was a move that was kind of universally people were pretty down on that that worked out pretty well kia stokes had a much better season than um we had seen her have the last couple years i i think you know Teresa plaisance was a player that i think you could be kind of you know not get too excited about as bringing them in sid colson was out of the league for a year you know when they and they brought her back and you know plaisance played a little bit over the the course of the regular season but obviously was not part of their rotation sid colson was pretty much like a break glass in case of emergency player. So even in terms of just kind of the, the end of their bench, you know, you were, it just wasn't really inspiring much in terms of the, the depth, but it, it didn't matter because they, they had enough. And I think that'll kind of feed into one of the things that I was wrong on and just like the overall level of play for Chelsea Gray, even before the all time playoff heater, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit, in our kind of season wrap-up episode uh, when Vegas won the title. But just, you know, for years we had been talking about how Chelsea Gray was trending in the wrong direction. And I think, you know, some credit definitely has to go to Becky Hammond for how she just enables her players, enabled Kelsey Plum to play a little bit more freely, how much space Chelsea had in this offense compared to, you know, previous seasons where they, you know, basically were just always playing out of the post. Um, it, it felt like in Chelsea... You know, this was probably the best spacing that she had played with. And I mean, God, I, I don't even know how long, even back to LA, like they were always playing with two traditional bigs and, yeah. you know, a, a Brittany Sykes or a Tierra Ruffin Pratt or an Elena Beer, like a player that was not kind of instilling a bunch of fear from behind the arc. There was always one of those players on, on LA to go along with, you know, bigs that are not huge three-point shooters in, in Parker and, and Neko Gumake. And, you know, obviously so much of her playoff success was just hitting impossible shot after impossible shot from, you know, non-paint twos. But her regular season just saw her, like, getting back to the free throw line like she did a few years ago, getting to the rim at the highest rate that she had in a while. So, you know, she got herself back to kind of, like, solid, above-average efficiency for the first time in, in three or four years. And it was the type of season for Chelsea Gray that I, I just didn't think we were going to see again. And I kind of had been thinking about her more as, like, you know, a good player, obviously, but like a lower end all-star type of um, player who, you know, gives you a lot of, brings you a lot of value because she can hit tough shots and because she's obviously such a great passer and a, a good team defender. But the level that she played on this season, again, even before having like one of the great playoff runs of all time, just kind of shifted her back into like an all-league player rather than kind of that, the lower end all-star. And, and I think there's a significant difference between those two groups. I definitely agree. Prior to the season, you know, who was the best point guard in the league? The discussion was, okay, is it Vandersloot? Is it Diggins Smith? And those are pretty much the two the two main candidates, right? Gray, Chelsea, Gray had fallen out of that conversation, yeah, I think. Yeah, she had fallen out she had fallen out of that conversation. She's back in there now. And there, there's no doubt about that. Of course you said the uh a lot can change when you uh shoot seventy something percent or whatever it was on non paint twos for an entire playoff run, but you're right. I mean, just the level of aggression, not just in taking and making those tough shots but going to the hoop as well chelsea gray is you know i don't want to say people forget you know hi curtis uh people forget that chelsea gray is you know a five foot eleven point guard who's built like a tank 
she can get to the hoop. And maybe it, maybe you're right. Maybe it is the increased spacing that she was playing in. But, you know, her usage just went through the roof through the playoffs. It really did look like the Aces made a concerted effort to get Chelsea Gray in positions to score more often. And maybe that's because they recognize, like, hey, there's nobody who's really guarding her. Or, you know, the opposing team is already putting their best perimeter defender on Kelsey Plum. Chelsea Gray is probably going to have some kind of physical advantage over whoever they put on her. So let's take advantage of that. And, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but without Jasmine Thomas uh, playing, the Sun just didn't have an answer for her. Nor did the Seattle Storm, nor did the Phoenix Mercury. So, yes, you know, the, the, the passing obviously has always been tremendous. The court vision, very, very special passer, very special playmaker. But when Chelsea Gray is getting to the hoop and, you know, you know, playing like nobody can guard her, you could just see the confidence through the roof with her. Um yeah, definitely back in all WNBA consideration. Argument for the best point guard in the WNBA. She's back in there, and uh, she's really a special player to watch when she's on. Should, should I go with uh, one of mine since we kind of fed? From... Yeah, go for it. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, I wanted to talk about Mariah Jefferson a little bit, uh, a, yeah. a player who I kind of thought was on the fringes of, of maybe being out of the league. And obviously it was a complicated situation because, you know, Dallas – for for all the things that you could say about what Dallas does wrong and and there's plenty that we can talk about you know they probably just have like the most like good WNBA players of any roster like everybody on that team basically aside from a couple you know you can see being part of a pretty decent rotation and you know that means sometimes that Mariah Jefferson is going to play behind Marina Mabry and Ty Harris you know neither one of those players are superstars but they're they're very good players and mariah jefferson you know was just for whatever reason playing less than than those players and besides that you know i I think just based on when you kind of dig into like some of the numbers here maybe it just wasn't an offense she was comfortable in or you know maybe it was just kind of having to always look over her shoulder for playing time maybe it was the injury that you know sometimes just takes a couple years to to really feel comfortable but she was just a completely different player when she got to Minnesota and i think a lot of that is just Minnesota didn't really have a choice so Mariah Jefferson maybe felt like she could play with a little bit more freedom of you know not being afraid to make mistakes and getting pulled for two other very good point guards cuz Minnesota didn't have that Minnesota i mean they didn't really have any point guard <laughs> like she came into a total dumpster fire of a situation right looking at what I mean, you remember what was going on with Minnesota to start the year? Like, they had Angel McCarthy for two games. They caught her. They had Odyssey Sims briefly. They had Yvonne Turner briefly. Like, there was, that was a total mess. And I guess trust goes a long way, you know? And Mariah Jefferson showed that she still has plenty left in the tank. She just needs the ball in her hands to be completely effective. And it kind of does raise some questions, I think, about what is going on in Dallas as far as kind of the hierarchy down there. I'm not going to get into specifics there. You could probably guess what I'm talking about, but that clearly wasn't the system for Mariah Jefferson. She can still make plays. I mean, like you said, this is probably the best season of her WNBA career. So she's got plenty left in the gas tank, sure. And just, you know, the the aggression that she had played with. You know, I had occasionally, um, as she was starting to play with Minnesota and just look like a completely different player, you know, tweet out how her, her free throw numbers, because she... She had the exact same number of free throw attempts in a Lynx uniform this past season as she had in her four previous seasons combined. Yeah, that's so, wild. Um, you know, she was a player who notoriously just like did not get to the line at all. I think she had maybe five attempts last year. So for her to really kind of rediscover that element of her game uh, again, I think, 
you know, when you're kind of taking it to the, to the basket or considering taking to the, you know, you don't want to get your shop locked or it, there, there's just so many factors when you are just kind of worried about what your role in the offense is going to be and the freedom and the trust that she had in, in this, for this team, you know, out of desperation for sure. Uh, Cause they, they really just needed something, but she had, she made 36 threes this season compared to 37 in, in her previous four seasons. Like she, she basically just like, I don't know, you know, she, she was not really this player prior to, and obviously a lot of it was minutes. Um, but you could, you could see that the difference, um, it wasn't just minutes though. No, it wasn't. It was usage in those minutes. It was role in those minutes. Like she knew she was starting. She knew she'd have the ball in her hands. She knew she'd be getting the lion's share of the minutes at the, at the position. This team had a uh, negative 0.5 net rating from the time that she joined the team on, which is pretty good. You know, they, that's just about even. Like they were basically an, a neutral team from when she joined the team. And well, compared to before when she before she joined the team, that's astounding. Yeah. They had a 106 offensive rating in games that she played compared to a 91 in games that she didn't play. Those are uh, across the timeline numbers. So, you know, it's a little bit different than WMA.com, you know, just in terms of how offensive rating is. But you can, you know, that's it's still a 15 point uh, difference in, you know, how how effective this offensive was. And I, I still kind of do have my doubts as to whether she can be like a good starting point guard on a really good team. But she's at least kind of reestablished herself as a player that's not going anywhere, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's... When you mentioned, to kind of start that little segment there, that Mariah Jefferson, you thought she might be out of the league soon. I wonder how much of this evaluation is based on that contract that they gave her. And how much... It really kind of makes me think about, yeah, was that contract bad? Yeah, it was terrible. But it makes me kind of want to revisit how we judge players through how much money they're making or whether or not their contract is guaranteed, how long their contract is, so on and so forth. Um, Because the Wings were able to shed that contract and maybe maybe the expectation was just lifted off the shoulders as well. I don't know. I just think it's something to consider as well when talking about individual players and performance relative to expectations. Yeah, and obviously there was a a coaching upgrade for Mariah as well. Maybe just Um, a bit, yeah. But yeah, I think we could probably move on. Anything else that you had? I had one more that I definitely wanted um, to hit on. Let's stick with the links for a quick second. I don't have much on her, but Jessica Shepard, I think, uh, showed me a lot this past season. Granted, the opportunity was there with Nafisa Collier coming back from pregnancy. Demiris Dantas, uh, a variety of maladies, uh, didn't really get going this past season. But Jessica Shepard was kind of forced into a much larger role than she was previously. And I think she performed very well relative to expectations. Um, how much winning back- basketball she contributed to is is up for debate, I would say, but um, I think we kind of pegged her as maybe a lost cause prior to 2022. I mean, she increased her true shooting from 44% previous two seasons to 57% this season. That's a pretty hefty increase, particularly from two-point range. Granted, she did kind of float out behind the perimeter there, but you knew she was going to get you some rebounds. It's just a matter of what else is she going to give for you. I do think she's still a pretty subpar defensive player, but if she's at least finishing plays off those offensive rebounds or finishing plays off of lobs, you know, we, we saw she has pretty good hands and she can distribute it a little bit as well for a big player. It does kind of give me renewed hope that Jessica Shepard could maybe be a contributor for somebody else in the future. Yeah, I'm still skeptical. I don't blame you. I don't yeah, blame you. The, the numbers are, are definitely impressive and a huge kudos for her to being able to have a, a nice individual season. But, you know, kind of the, the underlying 
thing of what you were saying there in terms of just like how much does this particular game really help winning basketball? I, I think might... was it just production in poor team minutes? You know that might be a part of it. Well, what are the Lynx going to be doing next year though? Sylvia Fowles obviously retiring. You assume Nafisa Kallier is going to be back in full swing in that rotation. We don't know what's going on with Demiris Dantes. We don't know what's going on with Natalie Achanwa. Are they going to try to get rid of Achanwa in that contract? I mean, the opportunity, I think, for Shepard is there. So the next step would be, okay, so you can put up better individual numbers. Can those numbers contribute to winning basketball? That's one thing we always kind of emphasize in this podcast. So she's got my attention. Now let's see where she does with it. All right, I, I got to take my biggest L, I think, of the offseason here. The Los Angeles Sparks, a team I thought would be pretty good, Eric. And they were, I mean, they were basically the team we thought the dream would be, where they're, you know, the second worst team in the league, very comfortably by net rating. I think they were minus 11 or something in net rating. Uh, maybe I overshot that a little bit. But they were, in terms of, of that specific metric, they were comfortably the second worst team in the league. And I thought the ceiling for this team was, you know, maybe like a, a middle-of-the-pack defense and a very good offense. And instead, they were bottom of the league in each of those. They, they, they could not... What, what, what happened to that defense? I mean, what happened? I do think so much of it was the Liz Cambage minutes. Like this was far and away, I think, the worst defensive season that she had since coming back over after you know missing a few seasons. You know, she she came back in 2018 and uh, was not great that season defensively, but was pretty good in 2019. A little worse, but not terrible in 2021. And I mean, this season she was a bad defensive player. Like I, I think. I hate to pick on one player to this point where I'm saying it's addition by subtraction, but when you went back and said on the Las Vegas Aces, yeah, letting her go is probably a good decision. I mean, if this is the version of Liz Cambage the Aces were going to be getting, it, it really manifested itself. I think the, the, the point that really stood out to me was when they were playing the Aces, the Sparks were playing the Aces, and Cambage got lost in space over and over and over again. It's one thing to be kind of like a paint-bound defensive center, as long as you know you're disciplined, you understand your angles, you're you're attentive to where the basketball is going on the floor, and you can test vertically, all that good stuff. But teams with any semblance of spacing were able to put Cambage in the pick and roll, able to make her move her feet, which she just wasn't able to do. And the other part of it was the conditioning obviously wasn't there. You know, this has been a kind of a recurring theme with Cambage, but man, she could not stay on the floor. She really just couldn't stay on the floor this season. So whatever she was giving you offensively there just wasn't enough there just weren't enough minutes to take advantage of that and i mean the numbers were still you know fine like if you just looked at you know if you were kind of revisiting liz cambage's career you know 10 years from now and kind of looking at just her year over year kind of like basketball reference stats like you would not really necessarily look at this one as sort of a big dip in in how good she was but there's just no argument i don't think for like that she was actually helping this team win games it was it was very very disappointing season but she was obviously not the only disappointing player i think um kennedy carter is a a player that i came into the season extremely high on you know she was maybe four or five on my 25 under 25 um she was ninth on this team in total minutes ninth in minutes per game she still had some encouraging moments but i think that that's kind of the ceiling of it was just sort of encouraging moments she like liz in many ways you know there's not really any statistical argument that she helped this team win games. She was not efficient in her individual offense. I mean, the players that this team has 
just don't make any sense to play with Kennedy Carter if you're going to make Kennedy Carter sort of like a, a focal point in your offense. Like Atlanta, the team that she had in Atlanta probably has better space, had better spacing than the Sparks team. And they just relied a ton outside of Carter, who was relegated to a role that I think we did not expect. They just relied on a ton of like below average creators and below average defenders. And, you know, they, they didn't have the coaching to kind of buoy those one-way players, uh, whether it was a decent three-point shooting specialist or, you know, uh, an all-defense wing who who or point guard in Sykes in Canada who have their offensive limitations. You know, I probably would have just been lower on this team. I, I, I shouldn't say probably. I 100% would have been lower on this team if you told me that Jordan Cannon would have been their starting point guard all year. But I mean, I I looked at this roster as one that could cobble together nice offensive lineups and, you know, lineups that could maybe be okay defensively. And, you know, they just, they never got there. First thing about Kennedy Carter that I want to say, how many head coaches has she had now in her WNBaker? Is it five? Uh, Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, five coaches so far in three seasons. At some point, if she is the talent, just the pure raw talent that we think she is and that a lot of people think she is it, you got to put up and put up and shut up you know put up or shut up you have to you can say like yeah bad spacing whatever but remember how excited we are or how excited we were rather in 2020 when she first came into the league about this dynamic pick and roll playmaking on a team that like you said in atlanta didn't really have many offensive weapons that complemented her very well but she still made a lot of things work she was still able to make a lot of plays we thought the future was very bright and then, of course, you know, off-court incidents uh, happened and, and piled up. And he said, she said, I don't want to really get into that. That's not what this podcast is for. But I do think there comes a time when a very talented player needs to just play. You know, I, I don't think it's it's some kind of random coincidence that she's having trouble getting or she's having trouble getting minutes and getting floor time over these supposedly inferior players under all these different coaches. Do you know what I'm getting at here? I do understand where you're coming from, and I, I can't dismiss it. Obviously, there's, you know, other players in this kind of same situation probably would be playing more. And obviously, you know, she had a very bad, you know, defensive season. Like we had, there are plenty of games where the Sparks were on and we, we had just been texting each other about kind of how lost Kennedy Carter was defensively. But I, I just think a, in an organization with maybe a little bit more vision that that was maybe a little bit more forward thinking that wasn't trying to salvage a seventh or eighth seed a couple years in a row because they are like you know trading their first round pick and and stuff like that and you know you can't make the lottery if you don't have your pick so just unsuccessfully kind of shifting into win now mode after even after like the liz thing and that's probably a big part of it like liz cambage by many accounts, just kind of quit on the team. And I'm sure there was some motivation to make the playoffs because of that as well, uh, at least from from their perspective. But I, ju- I just think a better run organization still probably plays Kennedy Carter more and at least explores the studio space of kind of what you have with this player. And granted, they have, you know, practices and stuff like that. They have a better understanding of it probably than, you know, just what, what they're seeing in her limited minutes per game. But, you know, when you're 11th in net rating and the playoffs are kind of looking out of reach, you know, maybe just play the player that you traded the first round pick for and kind of, yeah. you know, see see what can happen. 
Yeah, I agree with you on that. And I, I definitely see that side of the, the picture. If I mean, they were the ones who invested in her. They were the ones who took the chance. And they also signed Jordan Canada for one year guaranteed. So it, it didn't seem like there was a clear-cut approach. I definitely agree with that. But this is another situation where, man, I, I thought the situation was perfect for her. You know, I, I thought the situation was tailor-made for a player who had a lot of potential. Some stuff got in the way, her previous team. This is a chance for her to redeem herself. This is the chance to silence all the doubters. And instead, you know, the doubters just got louder. So we'll see what happens next season. Uh, this roster could look very different next season because basically everyone is coming off the books except for her. So, yeah, I'm I'm still willing to uh, accept the potential, but uh, I'm, I, I have, I'm a skeptic now. I'm officially a skeptic. I did want to hit on um, Jasmine Walker quickly to a player who, of course, missed basically all of 2021 and looked not good, I think, in her her first full season. But we have many times talked about kind of the, the two-year timeline that it takes to come back from Jasmine Walker's injury. So while she, I think, did have probably a case for just like the worst player in the league this year who like kind of you know was on their team from start to finish I'm not ready to just kind of like dismiss Jasmine Walker's career yet because you know this is kind of where you should expect a player to be this soon after her you know tearing her ACL and obviously some players do it quicker but in you know they're they're kind of back to their old selves within one year you know Kia Nurse of course had a pretty good World Cup tournament but you know that that's not the case for everybody and statistically speaking like more often than not, you know, it's just going to take you that extra year. And I think we were maybe counting or not counting, but maybe factoring in a little bit more of a contribution from their first round pick who they traded up for last season. And, you know, maybe Walker just ends up being another player from that class that can't play and, and ends up out of the league pretty quick. But I'm just not there yet based on kind of everything that we know. Yeah, this is a real bummer for me. I was really high on Jasmine Walker. I thought she was maybe the most pro-ready player in the class of 2021. Uh, that's looking like an L for me thus far. You know, I, I thought her game was just perfect to be a complimentary player to either whoever she was playing with in the front court and whoever she was playing with in the backcourt. You know, she's got that nice outside jump shot that she just didn't hit last season. Um, I thought she moves well without the basketball. She and, and I got if sorry to cut you off, but I just got to say, like, that's one of the things that kind of takes the longest time coming back from an ACL tear is kind of getting your legs back underneath you from long range um obviously that's that's not that ligament it's not your kind of up and down ligament but still just kind of getting your leg strength and your kind of core strength and you know propelling yourself from your legs like that that is a very important part of hitting three-point shots and so I, I think her shooting specifically is something that we can maybe still be a little bit more optimistic on that's a good point that's a great point actually um she ranked in the sixth percentile in spot ups, according to Synergy, and that's not good. Kind of the opposite of what I expected, Jasmine Walker. I thought, okay, if she can't do anything else, she'll at least be able to knock down the three, playing the power forward position. And uh, instead, she didn't knock down anything. And uh, like you said, she was not a good player. So I, I really do hope that Jasmine Walker is able to get back 100 percent because I think it was pretty clear, like just athletically, like she just didn't look good. You know, she she was never, I don't think, a a super athletic player in college. That's not one thing that I think was one of her strengths as a prospect, but you know, the two point shooting was really, really bad. It didn't seem like she was balanced most of the time. Like she was picking the wrong finishes. 
didn't really seem like she had much explosion. So I, I do hope you're right, and that the uh, that the two year the typical two year window coming back from an ACL injury is once again proves true with Jasmine Walker, and that she's able to contribute because this is a player who whose game I think is is valuable, but she was just not on her game. Um, I think we're we're just about ready to wrap up here, but I did just want to also mention how. I was pleasantly surprised with the play of Queen Egbo. Uh, we're we're going to dive really kind of more into Egbo and some other contexts here in the offseason. But, you know, I, I just had a hard time kind of imagining what her WNBA role would be from her time at, at Baylor and didn't love the number 10 pick. And I think there's still a lot of kind of questions to be asked, but she showed a lot more as a team defender and Eric you 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 pay a lot more college uh pay attention to the college game more than I do so let me know if I'm just way off base here but I feel like what she showed that she was pretty good at in the pros is kind of a hard thing to evaluate in college basketball where there's there's not a lot of dynamic guard play there's not a lot of spacing in in general you know centers really kind of have to guard on the perimeter and make their way kind of really have to cover ground as a help defender, there's obviously no defensive three seconds. You know, it's just a much yeah. more compressed game from kind of like, you know, 15 feet and in, I think. So yeah, Queen's athleticism, her lateral quickness defensively and, and you know, what she's kind of shown in, in that regard uh, and just her upside as a team defender, you know, I was I was impressed. And I'm, I'm really excited to see this player that I, I was not really excited about before this season. I wasn't excited about her either, and I know a lot of people weren't kind of scratching their heads when the Fever made that pick. I was okay with it once I saw her play in preseason, which, granted, not a lot of people can do because preseason games were still not televised. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's one thing to be athletic and long, but that doesn't necessarily automatically make you a good help defender. But Queen Egbo showed herself to be a pretty good help defender, particularly for a rookie. What I think we need to see now is some kind of offensive development. And I think this is why, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, one, I apologize. Two, um, I was always talking about why are the Fever constantly running post-ups for Queen Egbo? She is not a skilled offensive player. You know, I, I think this is one thing where they're just like, okay, we're so far out of the playoffs. We already got a head start on our tanking for next year. Let's just try and develop what, we, what we've got in real game action. I mean, basically the thing we were just criticizing LA for not doing. Yeah, you could say that. You could say that. Um, Queen Egbo, not a good post-up player at this juncture in her career, but you can tell they're going to make an effort to try to bring that out of her. And if she can come back with just any semblance of an offensive game, I think she could be pretty darn valuable. You know, she's maybe not the biggest, bulkiest center, but as you often like to point out, if you're a center who is a really good help defender, a good shot blocker, who can put forth that second and third effort on the glass... You're going to get some minutes in this league. And I think Queen Agbo was, I agree, got a pleasant surprise out of her. Yeah, look forward to talking more about her when we, we'll do another positional recap for a couple yes. centers. And then, of course, yes. you know, it'll be hard to leave her out, I think, of our 25 under 25. But but we'll get there later on in the offseason. Uh, should we wrap up? Let's wrap it up. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, this episode will be coming out a few weeks after we recorded, but uh, thanks for sticking with us through our little hiatus here. Um, if you want to support the show, which we always appreciate, you can do so by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can follow the show at Double Down WNBA, follow Eric at Nemchok E, follow myself at Trinkwald on Twitter. 
And if there is anything we missed that we were wrong about, please let us know because I'm sure there is a heck of a lot more. But yeah, in the meantime, uh, thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.